This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. To a podcast of rare antiquities, episode 37. Tonight, we will review the 1987 rom com Can't Buy Me Love, starring Patrick Dempsey, Amanda Peterson, and some other people in the background. This is Harry. And this is your indentured servant, Jeff. Jeff, how's it going, man? It's been a while. Yeah, going good, man. It definitely has been too long since we've done one of these. I don't know if I remember how to do this. Well, it's not that long. <laughs> <laughs> so, just as, you know, before we get into the movie itself, as part of our tradition, I just wanted to ask you if you have any memories of this movie. Were you aware of it? And how about the principals, like Patrick Dempsey and Amanda Peterson? Did you know of these actors? Uh, have you seen them in any work? Pretty much no. I thought I had an idea of what this movie was. I uh, did not. I'd never seen it before. Was not aware of anything. I mean, I know who Patrick Dempsey is. He's certainly been around, you know, prolific career, most commonly known for Ray's Anatomy. But other than that, I mean, that was it. Everybody else is pretty much a stranger to me. Okay, so how about Dempsey himself? Like, again, so you said you're aware of him. And yes, uh, you know, obviously most people, his most prolific role is on the TV show Grey's Anatomy. Did you see him in anything else prior to, say, the last decade where he's been a little, he's had a little bit more of that comeback career thanks to that show? Like, you know, in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, he was kind of one of the it boys, the young up-and-comers. And I'll get into that in a tiny bit, but did you see him in anything else? Not that I can recall. Nothing you can recall. So this is kind of your no. first foray into what is it? A McDonald's? What is it? McDreamy? McDreamy? I think is McDreamy. The, uh, okay. My yeah. wife watches the show, so she made me watch it for like a couple of seasons when we were first started uh, date. Uh huh. Yeah, well, I think I Grey's Anatomy itself is the McSteamer here. <laughs> <laughs> Just a giant smoking pile of turd. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, like, how about the genre now? Romantic comedies also known as rom-coms. We have not really touched that genre yet on the podcast. This is kind of the first one. Uh, yeah. I mentioned that White Christmas was semi-related as a crossover to that genre, but yes, it's more of a musical there. Any favorites? Do you watch them? I'm assuming you have because, you know, you do have a partner. So does she make you watch anything or any other past girlfriends make you watch any of these rom-coms? And if they have, what are your favorites? And then do you have any kind of guilty favorites? It's not really a, a genre I'm that familiar with. I mean, yeah, sure, I've, I've been dragged to one or two here and there, but I'm pretty resistant to them. And that's not because I don't like a good love story. I just find them very formulaic. So I get pretty bored pretty easily. And I find that uh, the characters drawn very shallowly and the plots serve, I mean, carbon copies of each other. So I'm not a big, that's why I'm not a big fan of the genre. I found that Can't Buy Me Love being from the 80s, is a little bit different than the rom-coms that we know of the 21st century. It has maybe more in common with the... Coming-of-age movies? Yeah, the coming-of-age movies, you know, the John Hughes type of stuff, which I wouldn't necessarily classify as a romantic comedy. Certainly, the you know, the, some of the DNA is there, but it's pretty different. As far as guilty pleasures for romantic comedies, I don't know that I could pick one out. I will tell you that I am a sucker for The Notebook with Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams. I don't think that really was a comedy. comedy. No, no, I don't think that was a comedy. <laughs> romantic drama, and that's like the closest I can get to this genre is that, which isn't even a very funny movie. In fact, it's quite sad. But anyway, that's about, about all I got for you. What about you? Does The Empire Strikes Back count? 
No, but Attack of the Clones does. Oh, yes. Attack of the Clones. I'm not going down. You know, poor Attack of the Clones. I'm not going to berate it any further. It's not funny in the right ways. That's for sure. (laughs) No, I think, you know, I'm not a big fan of Pretty Woman, but I respect the movie. And I think that's a romantic. I don't know if that's a romantic comedy or say. Again, it's sort of more in the drama. Yeah, it's kind of in the drama end of it. I would say the most recent one that I would kind of like, I do like Enchanted with, it also has Patrick Dempsey in it, but again, I don't know if that's a romantic comedy because it's just one of those romance movies that's a little bit of fantasy into it. I did get a kick out of Knocked Up when... Yeah, it's got its moments. Yeah, yeah. that one's not bad. That one's, I could say, I mean, I do... The Notebook's a good movie too. It's not something I would watch over and over again. I think I've seen it twice because my wife does like that movie. That might be... Yeah, that might be it. I mean, I did watch some romantic comedies in the 80s. Uh, Michael J. Fox, actually, and there's a movie I was going to list in my trivia. He was in quite a few romantic comedies in the 80s and early 90s. And I did seem to watch and enjoy some of his romantic comedies. And then we also talked about John Hughes, which are more of the coming of age stories, you know, Pretty in Pink. I think that's a John Hughes one. And then Breakfast Mm -hmm. Club and so on. But yeah, I agree with you. It's a genre that I really don't have that much exposure to. You know, I was waiting for Rambo in love or something like that, but that never happened. So yeah, as he pumps his girlfriend full of 50 millimeter rounds. Well, all I can tell you is, is all he wanted was something to eat. So (laughs) (laughs) I'll leave it at that. Still hungry. Anyways, how about you want me to get straight into plot synopsis here? Do you have any, anything else before I get into it? Let's rock and roll. Okay. So can't blame me love. Ronald Miller, played by Patrick Dempsey, is your typical high school nerd. He mows lawns to save up money to buy a telescope, probably to peep on high school cheerleaders, one of them played by Amanda Peterson, and she is the most popular girl in school. Ronald and his friends are nobodies, at the bottom rung of the clique ladder, and his friends don't mind or care. But Ronald dreams of being popular, getting it on with the A-team of jocks and cheerleaders, and he probably wouldn't mind which one would slap and grab his ass. He just needs that reputation. There is unfortunately no radioactive spider to bite Ronald, but fortune has it that the girl he pines for, Cindy, ruins her mom's suede dress at a party, and he decides to step in as her savior, and instead of buying his $1,000 telescope, he proposes to rent her for $1,000 to be his girlfriend for one month. Cindy takes the money to replace her mom's dress and let the show begin. The next day, Cindy and Ronald meet up at school. She slightly changes his nerdy looks to something that I suppose only Axel Rose would be proud of, and they reveal themselves as a new power couple of the school. Say, Jim, that's a nice outfit. Woo! <laughs> Everyone is flabbergasted. Is that? No. Ronald Miller? The lawnmower man? The jocks are angry. The hot girls are perplexed. But with a little Ronald Miller Jedi trickery, he soon has them raveled around his finger. Ronald's weird, but he's fresh. And he is so vogue that even Madonna would be proud. Over the course of the next few weeks, Cindy and Ronald keep pretending during the school hours. But in solitude, they start to open up to each other. Cindy doesn't have to keep up pretenses, and she feels more herself in front of Ronald. Ronald is clueless, however, and doesn't catch on that she's starting to reveal her true feelings in the South Passage. While this is happening, Ronald's close friend Kenneth is trying to reach out to Ronald. He misses his friend, and but he kindly doesn't want to interfere with what Ronald is trying to do. He just wants to be different. The only issue is, is Ronald keeps neglecting his old friends. As the month progresses, Ronald's popularity skyrockets. Both of Cindy's friends are already fighting of who gets Ronald next, and the jocks have accepted Ronald as one of their own. At the end of the month, despite Ronald missing the clues that Cindy has fallen for him, they stage their public breakup at school. But Ronald goes all Kanye on Cindy, saying she's a gold digger, but she ain't messing with no broke 
as he is pretty fly for a white guy. (laughs) 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 Those are the lyrics, man. Yeah, yeah. Ronald's turning of the tables puts him numero uno on the clique ladder. As Cindy's friends take turns dating Ronald, he gets some TNA. He convinces everyone that epileptic convulsions are the latest dance craze. The jocks convince Ronald to shit on his nerd's friend's house. And his William Riker status puts a bullseye on his back for the resident exotic high school slut. It's New Year's Eve now, and at a party, a drunken Cindy reveals the truth to everyone. Ronald then reverts back to post-Back to the Future Crispin Glover status. Nobody wants anything to do with him, including his old friends. All is lost, and he is getting his comeuppance. However, in typical 80s fashion, he rescues Kenneth from a jock beating by revealing to everyone that they all used to be friends when they were younger, and status really means nothing. That is something he learned pulling a Ronald Miller over everybody. Ronald isn't forgiven, but at least he rose above the Jar Jar Binks level on the clique ladder. The movie closes as Ronald comes full circle. He is back to mowing lawns. However, Cindy forgives him and climbs on top of the mower, and they kiss and ride off into the sunset together. Paul McCartney is wrong. You can buy love after all. The end. Jeff, based on that, first thoughts? Well, I guess the most appealing aspects there are your references to other movies. You know, it sounds like pretty standard sort of John Hughes type fair. So, you know, it's okay, but in order for this to work, it's going to have to be doing something interesting, either from a visual standpoint or, you know, performance standpoint or other underlying commentary there just on the surface. While it doesn't seem, you know, bad or unwatchable, if I just heard that, I'd be like, well, okay, I'm going to need to hope that there's more here than that. You know, you read that on paper. You're like a studio exec. Someone wrote that pitch for you. This is the 80s. So, you know, things have been done to death, but not to the extent it has been, you know, as of today, right? 2017. Yeah. Is this something that you would fork over money to have made? I mean, for the 80s, sure. Definitely not going to be an expensive film to produce. You've got a built-in audience with, you know, teenagers going to movies. So, sure, it seems like a reasonable investment if I'm a coked-out Hollywood executive. Sure. (laughs) Sign it up, baby. <laughs> they probably thought it was a porno, but, you know. <laughs> I know. I'd buy that for a dollar. Yes. <laughs> All right. So how about I get into the trivia here? This movie uh, was released in 1987. It ranked number 39 that year in domestic return as it made $32 million. I don't have any overseas dollar figures or any budget numbers that were available, but it did beat out the likes of The Princess Bride, Revenge of the Nerds 2, Superman 4, and Jaws the Revenge. Saying that, however, it did have comparable returns to The Running Man and The Lost Boys, who just finished higher in the box office that year in comparison. Hmm. One of the reasons it may not have made so much money in 1987 is because that year was saturated with comedies. Three Men and a Baby, Good Morning, Vietnam, Moonstruck, The Secret of My Success, Roxanne, Throw Mama from a Train, were some of the more notable comedies that were released that year. So just in terms of comparison, the top movie of the year was Three Men and a Baby, and that ranked in $167 million domestically in this made 32 million but movies such as lethal weapon and predator that were also released that year only made 60 million dollars domestically so that just gives you kind of a rough comparison as to you know it didn't you know number 39 in the whole year doesn't seem that great but it's when i was looking at the tallies it was really wasn't that far off from a lot of notable hits 
And there, I think there were only four movies that broke a hundred million dollars that year. Which for 1987 is, yeah. that's a good haul, right? Yeah. So 32 million, probably as you mentioned already, and I would safely assume it had probably had a very low budget. I mean, these are young nobody stars because, you know, Dempsey and Amanda Peterson were not really known at the time. So I could figure that. You know, they probably didn't waste their money on salaries and, uh, you know, it was all local shooting at a school, some houses. So that was probably it. So mm. probably made some a decent profit, I would assume. So let's move on to Patrick Dempsey. So we already talked about him a little bit. So he made several movies in his early career and then mainly he was seen on TV. And obviously we talked about he's best known for his role in Grey's Anatomy, which he no longer appears in. Apparently he is an avid race car driver and spends most of his time racing when he's not acting. And according to some trivia on the net, he used all of his salary from Can't Buy Me Love to buy his first car, a 1963 Porsche 356 convertible. Hmm. And the other main lead was Amanda Peterson, who played Cindy Mancini. She did star in a few television movies and episodes for TV shows after this movie aired, but she didn't really do too much after that you know, starting mid-90s onwards. And she did, unfortunately, die of a drug overdose in 2015. And something that may surprise you is I was surprised to find out that she was only 15 years old when this movie was shot. I actually did know that because I was reading some trivia myself, so I cheated a bit. No, actually, I was watching this with my partner, and she looked up her mm-hmm. because I think she thought she recognized her, and she was like, she was only 15. I was like, holy shit. She did not look like she was 15. She did not look 15. Oh, she looked like she was in her you know early 20s. Easy. Yeah, and I definitely want to leave the conversation about that right there. Yeah, good <laughs> enough. I did have the hots for her when I was younger, but I think I was younger than 15. So. Well, then that's okay. Yeah. Because I did see this movie when I was young, like my cousin did expose me to this film when I was right around the same time as Commando. So I had kind of like a double punch of Commando in this. <laughs> so <laughs> They go together in double feature. There's your drive-in double feature right there. Oh, yeah. Commando and Can't Buy Me Love. <laughs> they both start with C. Anyways, yeah, that's interesting. So anything else you want to comment about or do you want to get right into the film? Just because you brought up Three Men and a Baby, was that not Leonard Nimoy's only other non-Star Trek directorial credit? I believe so, yes. Okay. I mean, shout I'm out not, to Leonard Nimoy. So Yeah. But that's all. It's got nothing to do with anything. So. I could shout out Leonard Nimoy, but I mean, if he only has one directorial credit, that's not really saying. But Well, it was the highest grossing movie of 1987. And that's kind of a problem. <laughs> Because I've seen that movie. No, it's not great. It's not great. No. <laughs> got Ted Danson and Steve Gutenberg, man. A couple of veritable AAA movie stars right there. You're forgetting the lead, Tom Selleck. Ah, Tom Selleck. That's too easy. What's wrong with Tom Selleck? Nothing wrong with Tom Selleck. I mean, uh, you could remove the mustache and have that star in a movie. And that <laughs> basically, have the same. you'd have the same thing. You'd want his mustache to go against Lanny McDonald's mustache. There's an animated wow. movie right there. Wait I think we now. both know which mustache would win that one, but sure, the Tom Selleck would put up a reasonable fight. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Let's get into this movie. So, movie opens... With the Beatles song, Can't Buy Me Love. And the movie was supposed to be Boy Red's Girl, actually. That was the original title of the movie. And Mm. they were struggling to get the rights to use the song. And when they did get the rights, finally, they changed it to the last minute to Can't Buy Me Love. So, nice little new trivia there. So, we see 
Ronald Miller, he's mowing grass in a fancier community. Hawk girls pass by. You know, I love the little kid who's talking to Ronald and his reaction to the hot girls. And he's like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, like he's dumbfounded that Ronald is, you know, looking. What's so interesting here? So one minute in, I wrote this down. Immediately, you kind of get a sense of who is who. You know, this Ronald Miller boy, he's a nerd. And then you see Cindy because there's a few scenes of her. She goes into her house because she lives in that fancier community. You know, she's talking about clothes and a credit card and you know, not paying attention to what she's spending. So you can see she's a spoiled rich brat. Did you get that sense right off the bat as well? As soon as I looked at him, I was like, this guy is a turbo nerd. I mean, he was worse than a cliche. And right away, you can see the cliche setup, the nerd versus the rich chick versus the jock. I mean, the whole thing's just laid out right here. But he definitely struck me as, wow, this guy's not getting laid till he's 37 years old. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And you even cut to the girls. So the next scene here is you cut to the girls. And so you get to know that Cindy had the, you know, A-list jock as her boyfriend. So she's in the superstar status of, you know, the popularity group at school. But her boyfriend, I guess, left for college. And he's like a football player. They see that interview on the TV. And, you know, it's funny how he says, what does he miss most about home? And it doesn't mention the girlfriend. He says, I miss my massage chair you yeah, know, yeah. in the locker room. I don't know if you recall that. I do remember that. Yeah. She's all broken up over it too, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, what kind of massage chair is that? That's what I want to know. It's probably a pretty good one. Yeah. You know, I don't know if he's getting happy endings on that massage chair. You know, that <laughs> over the girl? I don't know. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> So this kind of sets it up how she starts to be available because someone who would be that popular would have a boyfriend wrapped around her all the time or she'd be wrapped around the boy all the time. So this kind of creates that availability for her to have Ronald as the girlfriend here. And I kind of liked that setup and it comes into play, comes back to haunt her later in the movie, that New Year's party. So I kind of liked this mm -hmm. little plot point and then she got upset and I even, I liked the acting there, how she kind of played it off that. You know, it's not that big of a deal. He, you know, he's maybe his first real interview. He's all nervous and he wasn't really thinking. But then secret, that's what she's saying to her girlfriends. And secretly as they leave, she's upset. And you can see her slam the door. And but did you like the cardboard cutout of him on the door there? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> I did like that. That was funny. Yeah. So I thought these were initially some decent signs of performances that I would not cringe at. So that was the first sign for me. I'm not sure about you. We could talk about that yeah. later. So Ronald, you know, so you see him now at school. He's he's just sitting there by the fences watching the cheerleader practice. And he's watching Cindy and the other girls. And you find out her and her friends are cheerleaders. And surprise, surprise, this is, is this a trope? And another little trivia that I wrote down here that I forgot about is... The cheerleaders here were all choreographed by Paula Abdul. And in fact, I think she was one of the background cheerleaders. You probably don't get to see a good shot of her. I tried to look for her. I tried rewinding it, but I couldn't see anything. But apparently she is one of the dancers and she did all the choreographing. Not that mm. it amounted to much because it was a quick scene, but she was involved. So you see some other people here that are part of that cool clique. You know, you see the jocks, the football players, and then you get Quint. And I think his name yeah. is Quint. And he's one of my actual yep. favorite players in the movie. Not like football players, like one of the principals in the movie, even though he's not the A principal. It's not just because of his name. I actually, we could talk about him as we progress through the movie. I really liked him. And you get that other jock. I think that's Big John, blonde guy. And that's the douchebag from Starship Troopers, the guy who gets his yep. brains shot out there. So, so <laughs> Yeah, that's right. If you yeah. remember. So as Ronald is there and he's watching them, you see his friend come by in his own BMX bike and play. His name is Kenneth. The actor's name, it's a real strange name, is Courtney Gaines, that redhead Kenneth guy. 
And he's yeah. kind of like that guy you made fun of, the buck-toothed uh, motherfucker who came and interrupted George McFly's dance in Back to the Future. You know, funny thing is, is this guy looks like an Archie. How did this yeah, he guy, does. How did this guy never play Archie, you know, from the comics? He is Archie. Well, he is Archie. And I think the reason he never played Archie is because nobody was ever lame enough to propose a live-action full-length feature of Archie comics because it's boring. I would have watched it. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of milk toast, though, isn't it? Archie Comics is. I like, hey man, I don't know. Kind of dull. It is. You're getting into a sensitive area of part of my childhood. I was big on Archie Comics when I was in my early teens. I would say not even early teens. I'd say maybe. Cool. Anywhere between 9 and 12, I was probably reading Archie comics. I mean, I'm sure we could do a deep dive into that one thing, because now I'm very confused and yet intrigued at this new aspect of your personality that we've uncovered. <laughs> I do... You've never read I Archie? Do, intermittently. I kind of know who the characters are, but I can't ever remember having read an issue of anything. I did want to read... There is a... Isn't there a zombie Archie a series. or something? Yeah, I was just going to say, there was a zombie Archie series, which I want to read. And I, I don't know if you've seen the TV show that's on now, but I no, did the shit out of that TV show. So you're making fun of me for reading the Archie comics, and here yeah, you are watching correct. that spin-off show or whatever it's called. Riverdale. Yeah, I know of its existence. I've never watched it. It's so good, and it's only good. You know why it's such a good show? It's because Archie Comics is so lame. That's why that show is so good. Oh, we're going to have to have a throwdown on this one day, man. I can't vouch for the show since I've never seen it. You should watch, because if you know the, like, Carly knows, like, she read Archie Comics as well, so she's watching this show, and she's like, I can't believe they're doing this right now. What are they doing? This is insane. It's trashy, but it's, like, so good. you got to watch it, and it's got nothing to do with this, except that there are also high school characters it's fucking terrific. If you go watch Riverdale, I will go read some Archie comics. I think I'm going to get the short end of the stick on that one. It's on Netflix, man. You just have to stream it. I'm just saying it's one of the things that you had to do in the 80s. It was just part well, of the 80s culture. Archie yeah, comics. I, I guess I missed that part. I was away that day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Anyways. Going back to it, this guy looks like an Archie. Does he not? That was my he, point. No, he definitely does. Like, he if, definitely like does. If he, at that time, when he's that young, this actor, he could have played Archie. Perfect fit. Totally agree. Goofy looking buck tooth. <laughs> dumb motherfucker. <laughs> definitely could have played Archie. Oh, my God. I think he said the same exact thing when we were talking about Back to the Future. This buck tooth motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> Just call him like I see him. You should have got some braces, though. Seriously. <laughs> Anyways, so immediately talk about, so we're a couple minutes in, Kenneth comes to see Ronald just ogling the cheerleaders and they start going off into school. It's the first day of school and I guess their senior year of high school. They start talking about class division and the cliques that are happening, you know, all those subclasses where you have the jocks, the cheerleaders, the nerds, the losers, and they all say they're all friends in elementary, but they all separated in junior high and that's kind of life and that's when your social status gets defined as junior high. And what did you think of that conversation? This movie is not really coming here talking about social commentary, but, you know, they're just talking about how it is. And I found a lot of truth in that. Did you agree with that statement? Well, did you like any of this conversation? I did. And, you know, I tried to put myself back in those shoes. You know, high school is ways in the rearview mirror at this point. So all that stuff definitely seems very trivial at this point, right, to us as adults now. I mean, we can maybe talk about this because I find that there's some points to be made here when we get to the end, but it does feel truthful. Like, that is something that you focus on when you're that kid in high school, is this very class division. I don't know that we were as intellectual about it or as nerdy about it, but I guess the problem I was having with it at the time was 
you know, I'm trying to put it back in the 80s and the time that it was in. And I don't know if they were doing what they were doing all the time. Like if this was a conversation that had already been had a million times, because it has been by now, right? And it, mm-hmm. when we record this, we've heard this a million times. So, you know, I, I wasn't trying to... I wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt that this maybe this was a new thing for a movie to bring up. But yeah, I was kind of mixed on it. I mean, I guess they continue that their conversation, a similar conversation home. And I noticed that like, cause he's talking about, like Kenneth says, there's, you know, almost like there are two things in life. You have to have money to get the girl because they pass by. I thought this was a funny scene. They pass by this nerd in a Ferrari. There's a hot girl in the seat. And I love the scene because they show, they linger on the guy, the nerd, in the Ferrari. And he can't even switch gears. Like, he's making all the bad, yeah. the bad sounds. I don't know if you remember that scene. Yeah. Because I had seen this movie for maybe more than a decade. So, I was laughing. I was laughing pretty hard when I saw it. That was a lovely scene, in my opinion. And then again, they kept talking about the class division here. Let's move to the next scene here. So, these are scenes between Cindy and... Ronald for the first time, but first we see Cindy steal her mom's suede dress because they're going to be a little party, house party. So her mom says, nope, can't steal it or can't take it. I'm not going to let you borrow it. Expensive dress. She goes out with this loser who I thought was pretty funny. And and then she steals the dress anyways to go to the party. And then, you know, who wears a suede dress anyways? But did you see the It's the 80s, baby. It's the 80s, yeah. And then you get to see a couple scenes with the football players. Again, I'm really enjoying these guys. And one thing I do want to talk about this movie very quickly is this movie surprisingly, and I think very effectively, lets you spend time, even though it's very quick scenes, with these jocks. And Cindy's girlfriends. So you get a sense of who they are, how they act, and it actually draws a lot of the comedy into the movie. Because I liked the scenes with Quint where, you know, he's kind of like, you see Quint and you see Big John. I think there's another guy, Ricky. I think they're all trying to hit on girls. And they all have different lines and, and it's all kind of amusing and funny. And I really enjoyed that. And Quince in this party is now saying, he's talking about, you know, I have a lot of time. I'm a connoisseur, wine connoisseur. I love fine yeah. wines. And then he like <laughs> turns around and spills it all over the dress. And then she's freaking out. And while the party's happening here, simultaneously, Ronald Miller is at home. And you get to see him just spending a dinner with his family. And he's getting chewed out by his younger brother. And here's a little piece of trivia. I'm sure you picked up on it. A young Seth Green is here. What did you think of these scenes? Because now you're getting a little bit more sense of who these people are. There's more of a, a class division. You get the party atmosphere. You get the home atmosphere. You get a little bit more time with the jocks and the girlfriends. You get to see Ronald's family and Seth Green, his younger brother, his introduction. Thoughts here, Jeff? Yeah, the scenes with the jocks I thought was a really good choice for the movie to make because they're still sort of caricatures, but they give them nice quirky personalities. Like the guy with the wine, man, that was fucking hilarious. Yeah. I really like that. <laughs> That's quick. That was so funny. Yeah. Quint was really good. The payoff for that later in the movie is because we do kind of start to get to know them as, when he sort of penetrates that social clique later on. So spending time with them now, you know, that helps layer it a little bit. So I thought that was very good. And the plays well for the comedy. There's stupid lines and whatnot. It works well. Seth Green, I found annoying. I won't blame him because he's just a little kid. <laughs> I thought you were just going to end it there. That was pretty funny. Seth Green, I found annoying. <laughs> yeah. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> I still find Seth Green annoying and always have, but I'll give him a break in the movie here because he's, what, two years old in this movie? He's probably 10, 10 or 11 or something like that. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of his, generally speaking, except when he had his recurring character on Entourage as himself, and he played himself as the biggest dick, and that was funny, and other than that, I'm I'm not a big fan. 
But what about Robot Chicken? You know, I never really got into the old Robot Chicken. I will acknowledge it's creative comedy. There is some good Robot Chicken, so I, I guess I give him that one. Better give that one. Robot Chicken. I, I, mean, I, I forgot. I forgot about Robot Chicken. It's been a long time since I've dipped my toe into one of those. Well, those were pretty. Funny. Well, I mean, not just the Star Wars ones. I mean, they do so many different ones. They still go today. So I I catch YouTube clips on that all the time, and I think they're still pretty funny. Anyways, let's move on. So her dress, Cindy's dress, is fucked. You know, it's wine. It ain't coming out of that suede, no matter how much he tries to clean it. So now we cut to the mall, and she's trying to return the dress for a new one. And we see Ronald there, and he's trying to buy his telescope. And he sees her through the looking glass, and then he immediately, you know, heads over there. And what I really liked about these scenes is... You don't really see, like, you see the excitement because you see the guy, the guy who he's buying the telescope from in that store. He's saying, well, you know, I thought I had a sale here. I was going to close it. Then he just he sees his client or the customer bolt away and he starts looking through the telescope and you see the director's vision there. And this is a really point and shoot movie. So I really liked this one little nugget in terms of visual style. You see these scenes unfold through the guy who was selling the telescope uh, POV because it's through the telescope. You don't yeah. hear any words initially for maybe about 10, 15 seconds. You just see his excitement and he's all over her. And we know what's happening as the audience, but I really like those scenes here. And I like the acting and the interaction. And then when they finally cut to them talking, I really liked her response because the first thing when it cuts away is she goes, are you high? Like he's, that's yeah. what she says. And then he says, he bluntly says immediately after that, I want to rent you. And you have the guy who's in the dress shop there listening in on the conversation. He's like, what the fuck is going on? And and then she says, you know, you're wrong. This is not going to work. And he says, I have a thousand dollars that says you're wrong. And I really liked these scenes here. 16 minutes in. So the movie is kind of already set up for how it's going. The MacGuffin is set up here. So what do you think of these scenes here, Jeff? Was they effective for you? Well, first thing I thought was this is 1987. This is 30 years ago. A thousand dollars. That's a lot of qualudes, man. A lot. <laughs> is it qualud or I qualud? Mean, I don't know. Like, how much is that today? <laughs> I don't know. Like, a lot, right? Like, a lot. And I just found that she pivoted into being a prostitute really quickly, which I kind of knew that was the premise of the movie, obviously, going in. But, wow. I mean, <laughs> I guess everybody's got his or her price. And there you go. It, it just seemed very... So it was too quick for you? They, they played it fine. It just was very casual how they turned a high school girl into an escort. Like, that. It's an interesting thing to talk about, but I'm not sure it was a focus of this movie. Well, no, it wasn't a focus of this movie, and that's part of why it's a little disturbing. Well, as I said, that's 80s lifestyle, right? I don't think so. I don't know how many <laughs> how many rich high school girls were overtly prostituting themselves out. I mean, it's a lot of dope. That was preoccupying me at this point. I'm like, man, this is there. She's leaning hard into this quickly, and I know she's in a desperate situation. Yeah, she's she's in a desperate situation. It's no different than if she want if she was desperate to buy drugs. No, like she's desperate to get this dress. I mean, what's the difference? Not much. But I guess now let's maybe pull a little layer back and have a couple of minute conversation here. You're talking about that it's prostitution. You know, I made a joke about it at the start. It's prostitution. Later, it's mentioned. It's really considered prostitution. Is it prostitution? Did she sell? Like, what is really the definition of here? Because it's all a guys. Right? She doesn't lend her body. They don't do anything physical. It's just acting. So technically, well, okay. is it prostitution? I mean, like, how do we want to, how do you classify it then? I do classify it that way. But I mean, it's definitely an escort because she's selling him her time for money. He 
overtly say, I want yeah. to rent you. And even through their conversation, she goes, okay, you may rent me. And with my rent money or your rent money, I guess, as I'm your landlord now, I'm buying this dress. But the deal is, is that, you know, she has to pretend to be his girlfriend, somebody that would be physically intimate with this person, at least on some level. I know it's high school. But she wasn't. So, well, so you're right. But did say that she is, is renting, an escort, is, though. Yes. Like, that's what an escort is, is like, here's my time. Yeah, so I was going to agree with your you. money. You're taking my time, but there was no physicality to it. Yeah, it's not a whole lot better. It's not a whole lot different either. No, I was just interested to see if you, where your moral compass was on this. Not saying that you are into something like this. I'm just saying how you define prostitution or escorting. I was struggling with that too. Initially, I'm saying, you know, she's going along with it. You know, she's pretending, giving the time, but there was no physicality. What base do you need to get to before it's considered prostitution versus being just an escort? Like, there's nothing illegal about being an escort. Like, there's no legal problems there, right? But what base do you need to get to before it's prostitution? That's the question, I think, right? Yeah, that's the question. And I mean, I think they loosely talk about it, not in any great detail here. But I think that's kind of the fallout at the end of the movie, right? Yes. All right, so let's cut to the next day at school. So they have their agreement. He has her as a pretend girlfriend for one month during school hours and I guess a little bit after school. And then the next day, they see them honoring the agreement. They meet outside and Cindy sets the rules. How long one month? How many lunches? How often do they hang? How many Saturday nights? And she starts adjusting his look. (laughs) And I like that. It's like, you know, it's a scene right from Twins, the shirt rip, but he didn't flex. She just pulled it straight down, right? And it's like, you know, you get the hairdo. uh, And then he finally gets the scene where he walks down the cool hall. And I like these scenes because... You know, you're getting the guffaws and the weird looks from the jocks and the cheerleaders and the other cool people there. But the funny thing is, and I touched upon this in my plot summary, Cindy's friends, I think the jocks are originally more flabbergasted, but Cindy's friends were like, what's going on? But, you know, they're starting to dig his style right off the bat. And then you get the home economic scene here and they start asking her what's going on. You know, like, is this a thing? Also, there's one other thing I point here. You get these clowns, the jocks, they're not wearing any shirts. (laughs) <laughs> the home economics scene here. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, that's just a Hollywood thing. But then Cindy's friends start questioning her and she keeps dodging the questions with comebacks and stuff like that. Then you get the lunch scene. So these are a few scenes here in the first day or two. And you get the classic establishment of where you get to see what happens in these situations at school, especially high school, where the cool people sit, who gets what, things are reserved. You get the initial confrontation here between Quentin Ronald and Cindy defends him. She is acting very mature and nice and welcoming here. Did you find that strange or off-putting from a narrative standpoint? Like even her friends are kind of okay with him sitting there and they're pretty nice. Was this surprising to you? Because I know the jocks were really antagonistic, mm-hmm. but then the friends, yeah. the, the girls and Cindy were a bit more welcoming. Like she's doing her part because she's acting it up. But even like the girlfriends aren't, they're not saying anything. They're not like, you know, ignoring him. They're just kind of just wondering what's going on. Did you like these scenes? Did you find it strange? You think it was happening too fast? Any comments? Yeah, maybe it was happening a little bit too fast. You know, that being said, I don't know if refreshing is the right word, but it just played to me that they were, you know, they weren't trying to villainize everybody right off the bat. The girls are just nice girls or whatever. Yeah, they're popular, but that doesn't mean that they're mean to everybody. So we're sitting there and they're like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. 
chill out. Like you said, they were kind of digging his style right off the bat anyway. So they've already started to warm up to him a little bit. And women tend to be a little bit more nuanced than their Neanderthal counterparts anyway. So it played with some truth there, I thought, where the dudes are trying to be all masculine. They don't want another dog pissing in their pool. So they treat them like shit right away. And the girls are a little more chill about it. That worked just fine for me. It worked uh, fine for me, too. I didn't yeah. have a problem. I was a little surprised that it did move that fast. I was thinking there would be a bit more tension at first. But this movie moves at a fairly fast pace. So, And I think that works to the movies. Like It's more effective for the movie mm-hmm. that way instead of lingering because there's not too much to dig into anyways. So That's I, think, right. I think that yeah. works in the movie's favor. So let's cut to the next scene. So we got another house party. This is Big John's party, and it's kind of the first date after school for Cindy and Ronald. And I did write this down. I love the line from Cindy's mom when Ronald, you know, rings the doorbell and he goes, did I forget to pay you? (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that was a nice little, you know, I thought the writers cleverly put that in there. I thought that was pretty good considering what he was doing. So before we get to the party though, unfortunately, and I think this is kind of a trope, we start to get some of these cringeworthy, sincere, honest moments between them because this is like where Ronald's trying to just be a friend because they're talking about oh you know the boyfriend football boyfriend went off to college his name's Bobby and he's you know he's saying why are you down and he's saying oh Bobby hasn't called you he's in college and stuff like that there's a couple of scenes like that that he's kind of supporting her saying it's okay Mm -hmm. don't worry about it you know he's just a busy guy thankfully it doesn't last long here but these kind of sincere honest moments that are cliche they rear its ugly head in a couple of other scenes which I'll talk about shortly so let's get to the party so we do cut to a scene before they get to the party where you see ronald's former nerd friends and they're having a little poker party at their house Mm -hmm. and i like this one scene here because you get the setup you know the friends are missing ronald and they can't believe he stood him up it was a you know friday or saturday night and you know it's automatic that they would hang out they've got this ritual and i love how the scene cleverly cuts because he says you know, a cold brew just ain't the same because he didn't bring the soda, mm, you know, mm-hmm. or drinking the soda. And then he cuts immediately to John crushing that beer on his head at the party. Yeah. I love it when movies do that. I mean, it's not like it's really clever, but for me, I enjoy that because I feel like the editing and the writing and the directing, it's a little more cohesive. Like they're really thinking how to transition to the next scene. I always enjoy that, whether it's movies or TV or anything like that, where there's a payoff. One scene ends, but there's a payoff to that scene immediately in another scene, which is completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. A fun little scene transition there. A nice little segue. I mean, it keeps things moving. It gives you a little laugh. It's a nice little touch. Yeah. You know, there's not much towards this movie, except it kind of establishes, for some weird reason, Big John's known for his big farts. Yeah. Now, I'll just ask you straight out. Did you laugh at this? I will admit to laughing at a fart joke here or there. Sure. Uh, Not this one, but I thought it was fairly interesting that they would peel back the layer. Because, you know, guys fart. Big guys will probably fart. But, you know, these are the A jocks, right? And they're trying to, they're showing them classy. They're all dressed up at the party, you know, all that stuff. And then, but he seems to be known for his farts. And I thought that was amusing. And I thought they played that up really well. So as the movie continues, let's keep this rolling. The relationship between Ronald and Cindy is blooming, at least their pretend stuff and the stuff behind the scenes. So again, we cut back to something where I think he's washing her car for her. And I love it that he's like, you know, his shirt's off and stuff like that. And man, that guy's like Skeletor, like literally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He needs a sandwich staff. (laughs) Yeah. 
He's just skin and bone, literally. Definitely but is, yeah. That's okay. That's fine. Then again, you have this scene here where she feels – they start to have, like, honest talking. And then she feels confident enough to show him her poetry. That she hasn't, like, revealed that to anyone before. And then he starts – the sincere, honest, cringeworthy stuff comes back. And he says, oh, Cindy, you could do anything you want. You could just put your mind to it. And it's all very cliche. So they have a couple of good playful moments. Like, they're acting between each other is good. And then they start spraying each other and they're having a little fun and stuff like that. These are fine scenes. Uh, what do you think of these kind of cliche conversations? Well, like, I mean, like, I didn't have a problem with it. I mean, we're in the neighborhood of these types of conversations. So when they, you know, come out and start watering the lawn, I don't freak out. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And this is where I thought the whole movie was going, which is so obvious that you know he's going to rent her. They're going to pretend, but they're going to spend a time together. They're going to find that they have a connection. They're going to start falling for each other. So all of this stuff, like it's perfectly logical. It's a little corny. Sure, but I don't find it at all out of place with anything that we've seen so far. Not a ton of depth, but they're pulling it off. The performers are pulling it off just fine. It's fine. It's working fine for me. Interesting. It's good to hear. So, like, the scenes will continue here throughout the movie. Like, there's some shopping scenes. You see her buy him a couple of clothes, like, you know, sunglasses or shirts and stuff like that. Then you get their kind of final date scene. It's like the end of the month. Then you get the airplane graveyard scene. Ronald takes her there. That's kind of a romantic date. It's a little cliche, some of their conversation about, you know, he's staring at the stars and the moon and stuff like that. I didn't really like the date, but I liked... The fact that she was warming up to him and you kind of get these scenes, but he's clueless. Because at the end of that date, so it's been a month. Yeah. So at the end of that date, I like the conversation that they have in front of her house as he's dropping her off or she's dropping him off because he doesn't have a car. Sorry, sorry, he probably has to ride his bike home. But they have that conversation where it's the end of the month and they have to kind of now, he says, okay, well, I guess I should be, we need to have that talk because it's the end of the month. That she's not thinking it's the end of the month. We need to break up talk. She was thinking that, oh, okay, because she started to have feelings for him and she thought maybe he was going to ask her out for real. And she mm-hmm. would have totally gone for it, but he was clueless. He didn't see that. He was more interested in the rep. Let's yeah. break up. I've did it. I'm now hanging out with the cool crowd. I've got my reputation. That's all I wanted. Whereas, in fact, really what he wanted to, be, to begin with was Cindy herself. But I guess we can mm-hmm. talk about that. Did he really want her? No, I don't think that he did. He just wanted the status, and that was what he figured was his fastest way in, right? He saw the opportunity, he went for it. He didn't really care about her, except that, you know, obviously he's oblivious to the fact that she starts to have feelings for him. So, I mean, I'm guessing he didn't really have any feelings for her, or did he? Like, See, that's, I was that's a, weird, because, like, obviously he's pining for Cindy at the beginning of the movie. I guess that's true. So he sees his opportunity. So why doesn't he... Why doesn't he go for it at this point? Like This is the interesting part of the movie because he doesn't believe she would still want him because it's he's a fake, right? Yeah, I, I mean, that would make sense and that would be interesting, but I didn't read that from the lines or from his performance. It just seemed he was totally oblivious, was perfectly happy. We didn't see any heartbreak on his part. No. He was enjoying it. He was enjoying it. He was it. Oh, relishing yeah. that breakup. He liked it. And, yeah, because we'll and, get to that breakup the next day. So, yeah. but I did like these scenes. I thought the acting here was really good because he was so enthusiastic that he has now a reputation because she mentions, Oh, don't worry. You know how we'll break up tomorrow. It won't hurt your reputation. He goes, reputation. I have a reputation. And he's like, so gleeful. He's like super yeah. pumped. He's excited. I like these scenes, but I, I like the fact that this 
makes us talk about it because you could not talk about it. There could be nothing there. But, you know, now you're wondering, is he in it for only the rep or did he really like her? And I thought that it's, was really interesting. At this moment, these scenes here, this is where the movie turns. This isn't what I was expecting. Right? Yeah, I, I was, was going to ask you that because you thought this was they would discontinue and then they would get together. I mean, what I was expecting, and this would have been the standard way to go, is they start to have feelings for each other. He goes for it, like on their date there where they're lying under the stars. And even though she has feelings for him, she dumps him because he's a, you know, a maggot or whatever, lower social status, even though she has feelings for him. Like, that's where I was expecting it to go is that he would go for it. She'd say no. And then we'd spend the rest of the thing with them coming to grips with their differences, her realizing that social status doesn't matter and all that stuff. That's, that's interesting. That, that interesting. would have been the standard way to go. No, but right? that's interesting that you, that's where your thoughts were, where you thought the movie yeah. was headed. So then you must that's, have been pleasantly surprised how it turned out. At least in this um, scene here. Here's the problem, okay? I was surprised, but at the same time, I hate it. Uh, hate's a strong word. It bugs me when movie characters make dumb decisions for no real good reason, especially when it's your protagonist and you're trying to root for this skinny motherfucker. And he goes and does something so dumb when it's so obvious that he should have done the different thing. I get but he really had no frustrated. Confidence. But this is, I'll argue with this. I love this. Because if I put myself in that shoe, I don't know which way I'd go because I would think that she knows I'm a loser and I bribed her, I tricked her into dating me. I have no chance with this girl, so I have to break up with her. My mindset isn't there. His mindset that would make isn't sense, there. But, but, his, that, but that's his what attitude, his mindset is. But his attitude, his attitude on screen was, did not sell that. He was having a great time. Because he had, If he was having yeah. those feelings, he would have been more withdrawn. He would have been more awkward. He would have been like, oh, man, this is coming to an end now. She thinks I'm a loser because I rented her. You know, it sucks. It's like, okay, you know what? You don't need – it would have been like, you know what? You don't need to do the last date. It's fine. Thanks, and I appreciate it. And I'm really – like that would have been – the person feeling that would have been a little more penitent in this scene as opposed to he was excited he was digging it and he couldn't wait to move on to the next phase i just argue with the fact that since she was his ticket in like if it was another girl and his eyes were on cindy he would be excited to go after cindy but because cindy was his ticket in and she knows everything how he got in and he's a fake i'm just making the assumption that those possibilities are just shut off in his brain and that's why he didn't pick up on the signals I agree with you. He's so excited. It's not there, though, but it's not there. I don't see that. Like, where is that? I'll tell you why. You see hints of that later because he does treat her like very mean mm -hmm. to live up to the reputation in the next scene and a couple of other scenes later. But he does have regrets and you could see that he didn't mean it and he still would like to reach out to her. There, yeah. are, There is small evidence. There's like small little scenes like that. I agree with you up to this point. You don't see it. But the rest of the movie and because he was pining for her at the beginning of the movie, I'm just led to believe that that's... His mindset, he just saying, well, because she knows everything, I got no shot. So all I got is my rep. Now I'm in the popular group. So I'll just, you know, enjoy what I can with somebody else, right? Because I can't have why, that experience with her. Okay, well, let's let's put a pin in that. It's relevant to the scenes that comes. Let's okay. keep rolling here because this okay. is going to be an ongoing discussion. Okay, so let's get to the next scene. So the next day they have their public breakup. And this was a little shocking because I think that they had previously agreed it's just going to kind of be a mutual public breakup. Like they'll do it loud enough for everybody to hear. They'll stage it and they'll go their separate ways. And then he's got his popularity. She's got her popularity. But then he turns the tables on her. And I found this shocking and a little bit, not just unnerving, but maybe a little out of character. 
but maybe in character because, you know, depending on where we want to classify him, what his main goals were, because he turns her and her publicly and says, you know, you're a gold digger. I'm broke. You took all my money. I can't afford to keep you as my girlfriend. Yeah. Like, so he humiliates her as part of the breakup here. And the jocks and the girlfriends, they all loved it. They call him a heartbreaker. And now they're attracted to him too. I guess he knew how to play it, but this didn't seem like as what they agreed to do. And I found that shocking. I do agree. I I was wondering, like, is this what they rehearsed or is he ad-libbing and going too far? I think that's kind of what I thought too. Yeah. Like he got caught up in the moment, but makes him such an asshole, right? Such a piece of shit. And like, you can have your protagonist who we're supposed to be rooting for, like take a turn and then try to kind of claw back to to redemption. But this was such a quick heel turn. I was real disappointed. <laughs> this dude, right? He was such an asshole. But the weird thing is then, I agree with you in a sense, but then the immediate next scene after that fallout is he meets up back with her at her house. And then they have their kind conversation where she's not really upset. And he's himself kind to her, you know, everything like that. And and I love, again, this is another nice little nugget transition scene. She goes, okay, you know, you got your rep. Just my one piece of advice to you, Ronald, is just don't change. Be yourself. And then he goes, me change? Never. And he cuts to the next day and he's wearing yeah. these, you know, MC Hammer or these like, I don't know, what kind of clothes are these? I mean, like, he's like, he's got this new look and an attitude. Like, who's he supposed to be? And like, you know, these African safari trench coat. Like, what is this? <laughs> but, this <laughs> is where the com- but this is where the comedy is, right? So this, <laughs> I enjoyed that. That was funny. I mean, they, you know, they, they definitely play up his new tood, which yeah. was very funny. And his new wardrobe, which was funny. And I keep going like, Man, but now I'm like, he's a dick. Really? I mean, I guess so. I completely see. No, I completely see where you're coming from. I can understand. Oh, just one second. I'm just looking at my dog, making sure he's not having a seizure. Okay. He's just swimming. He's dry swimming on the ground. You okay, Tello? Oh, he's okay. <laughs> he's just, he's Dogs just do that fun. sometimes, right? They just like eh, fall away. <laughs> well, I can't be sure, but I think he was just having fun, <laughs> or he's trying to get my attention. That's what he's trying to do. That's okay, Tello. All right. And sorry, because I said I'm in the kitchen now, so I, I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm not, uh, alone. Um, but oh, this, okay. ki- but this kicks off. Okay. But I agree with you, but I can, I'm trying to put myself in this situation. If all of a sudden I got in, I would probably have to act a little out of my element and play it up to be something I think would be cool that he would have no idea how to act. And I thought that's where these scenes are. And I think that's where this kind of second to third act of the movie plays. Like, he's completely out of his element. He's a fish out of mm-hmm. water. And that's where the humor is. So I enjoyed this. Yeah, that's certainly where they try to place the humor. And in and of itself, and some of these scenes, like, some of it works well. Like, there are some laughs to be had here. And it also speaks to the nature of popularity, where it's kind of all a facade. And I mean, we probably want to revisit this at you know more towards the end. But, you know, because now he's not popular because he's doesn't matter how he dresses now he can dress however he wants he's popular so he can he can do this kind of stuff he doesn't know how to act so he's acting like he doesn't know what to do so he can't be himself he's too nervous to be himself so he's got to put on a show yeah that rings true that's all fine but then you're um, saying he's a dick like i don't know if you're you know suggesting that he's a dick because of the way he's acting here because i think he's just playing it up because he thinks this is how he needs to be keep it at this level I guess the problem I have, the reason why I'm saying like just coming off as a douche is his obliviousness 
with the girl. I can't remember the character's name. How he humiliates her in front of everybody, you know, intentionally or not, like it, but you know, how he does it and then takes the spoils of war, which is his new popularity, and starts living it up. He comes off as very selfish and obtuse. And these aren't qualities that I normally associate with the guy I'm supposed to be rooting for here in the movie. So that's why I'm like, well, he's now he's a dick. And I think that that's what they're trying to show us. In yeah, all but they're, uh, and, yeah, exactly. Because at the end, that's what they're trying to say. That's their yeah. whatever commentary is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyways, this kind of kicks off some of the more funnier scenes of the movie, at least for me. I'm interested to see if you found anything amusing here. Because now, obviously, he has to act a certain way. You know, he's dating one girl while other girls are hitting on him. And these are Cindy's, you know, close friends that are doing that. I found that interesting, too. There's no, you know, there's no limits. Okay, Cindy, it doesn't matter how he treated you or how he dumped you. He's mine. Oh, no, no, he's mine. And it doesn't matter. Yeah. They all just fight over him. And I found that interesting. And then one of the girl says, you know, okay, you know, you're going to take me to the dance. And he's like fucking sweating. He says, fuck, I don't know how to dance. And so you get the African anteater ritual here. Oh, man. Fuck, that was pretty funny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You see him learning to dance and it's supposed to be, what is American Bandstand? Yeah. That, you know, religious ritual dance is supposed to be something that's hip and cool and in. So he does it at the dance and then everyone does it. But the best part is, you know, because everyone's like saying, oh, you know, Ronnie's fresh and cool. So it must be in. It's Vogue. Yeah. So they start doing it and he becomes a hit. But I love that the nerds who couldn't really get into the dance and they're sitting on the side. These are Ronald's friends. They immediately go, this is one of my favorite scenes. It's the African anteater ritual. (laughs) It wasn't just the preposterous dance itself. It's the fact that they recognized it. Yeah, that was good. (laughs) Yeah, That was my favorite joke in the movie. I love it. And again, going back, one of the things I do like in this movie is the fact that they play, they have certain scenes with these B players, whether it was the jocks or the girls, Cindy's friends or Ronald's friends here where they all have little bits to do and play. And we'll get into something with Kenneth that'll happen shortly here. But I really enjoy how they're giving all these people tiny little nuggets in the movie. Mm -hmm. And it kind of completes the movie in a sense. It makes it some of its parts, but it makes it more than just only about the two protagonists we have here. Because it could be really be a dull movie if it was just focusing on Ronald, Cindy, and maybe only him starting to date Cindy's girlfriends. And then that's kind of it. Get some texture, right? You need to world build a little little bit in high schools it's a community in itself it's like a small town so it needs some of this texture to feel real gives it some laughs those are some good choices i thought that they made here yeah the one ongoing joke i didn't like i think i liked it when i was a kid but i you know i don't think it works effectively now is seth green who's playing his younger brother chucky is trying to he knows you know his brother's a dork so how does he become popular? So he starts investigating and tagging along and he keeps getting farted on by Big John. I think one yeah. time. So. <laughs> when you say it like that, it sounds pretty funny. But yeah, it didn't really work. <laughs> no, it didn't really work. Except for getting farted on as a little kid. That's pretty funny. To <laughs> I really got a kick out of that when I was a kid. So um, the old friends are still simultaneously interwoven between these scenes. I think Kenneth, mainly Kenneth, is trying to reach out to Ronald saying, you know, you have time to hang. What's going on? You're not the same anymore or are you seeing his reactions to you know ronald being a different guy or you know he you know he's kind of lost him as a friend he thinks and he's a little frustrated mm-hmm. and sad and i thought that's okay these are effective scenes then you get the halloween shitting on the house scene it's not just egging a house so we find out that and i like the setup because you see kenneth 
It all of a sudden cuts to Kenneth, his brother, and his dad at Kenneth's house, in his dad's house. Yeah, right. And he's saying, whose house is this? What's going on? And, you know, it, the payoff is later. And you see them setting up a trap. And you have a small little exposition saying, you know, these guys always come here every year. But you see the setup and you see how over the course of a few years, their house is always getting egged and shitted on. Like a bag of dog shit is getting thrown on their door along with their house getting egged. Now they're setting up a trap because they want to capture one of these guys. So then you yeah. cut immediately to, I think it's Big John and Ricky and Ronald. They've dragged Ronald along for the Halloween prank. Ronald doesn't know what's happening. He's like, okay, well, like some stranger's house, fine. I could do that. And he realizes it's Kenneth's house. And then he doesn't want to do it when he realizes it's Kenneth's house. But he gets peer pressured to do it. And they give him the worst task is the throwing the dog shit all over the front door. But Kenneth does catch him. They set up the trap of lowering the net. And Kenneth tackles him, sees that it's his friend Ronald, but he lets him go because of the shock. I really like these scenes, and I liked how the acting, I really like Courtney Gaines did a really good job here, in my opinion, because you see his reaction. What did you think of these scenes? And in addition, did you buy into the peer pressure here? Did you buy into Ronald having those regrets and that doubt of doing it in the first place? And then I have a second question. Were you ever peer pressured into doing something outlandish like this? I bought it, and I thought Patrick Dempsey played this well. You can see the conflict mm -hmm. uh, within him. That worked well. Like That felt true. That felt natural. And when he's kind of caught in the act there, the, you know, they kind of exchange a look. And that felt real. That felt good. Was I ever peer pressured in something outlandish? Not really. Uh, it's kind of a square. I didn't do anything like this. Well, I never threw shit on anybody's house, but I, I did the egging of oh, the do, house scene. Do tell. I never threw eggs at anybody's house. Or I had eggs thrown at my house when I was a kid, but never. One, it wasn't during Halloween, but one time when I was young, my house, we woke up one morning and yeah, we had toilet paper all over our house one time. But I, I never toilet papered anybody else's house. It was so funny. You'll laugh at the story. I was so upset. So we called the police for just toilet, because, you know, our family didn't know anything about this. We called the police. The police actually came to our house. And there was a footprint in the backyard by obviously one of the people who did this. And I was demanding the police officer take a cast of the footprint <laughs> <laughs> as proof. <laughs> did he just give you like a little tap on the shoulder like, they're at a boy's sport? <laughs> I don't know. I'm proud of the fact that I knew I could, he could take the cast of the footprint. That's a sign of somebody who's already seen too much TV. That young tender age. <laughs> we'll open a case file right away. See if we have any leads. When I was in junior high, I started to get into a little bit more of the, the popular crowd. And I was slightly peer pressured to do some stuff like that. It was nothing big. It was like egging a couple people's houses that we knew. So <laughs> it's more of a revenge thing because we didn't like them and stuff like that. But anyways, going back to these scenes, I agree with you 100%. I think they're very effective. I think not only do you get the definite proof that Ronald and Patrick Dempsey, his character, does not want to do any of this. You can see it all over his face, but he is peer pressured. And then I love the look he gives Kenneth because they're wrestling and then it's a pause because he realizes who he is and they just stare mm -hmm. at each other for a second. Yeah. I love that scene. And then I love Kenneth's scene after that. Like he's just heartbroken and shocked. Like he's just dumbfounded that this could happen. I love that scene. And I thought he played it really well. Both actors. I thought that was really good. So immediately after that, we get to the next day, I believe Ronald's trying to chase Kenneth and Kenneth's uh, down trying to apologize and explain, but Kenneth won't have any of it. And then we cut immediately to, I think there's a scene here where again, Ronald does treat Cindy a little mean. So I guess that backs up your claim that, but he does have regret because he's just eyeing that exotic slut 
Because someone, mm-hmm. I think one of the jocks says, you know, the, you know, this chick sleeps with everybody. She has her eye on you. You know, he wants to get laid and stuff like that. So that's all he can think about, right? And then in between, you know, him finding this information out, Cindy comes along, says, oh, you know, I thought we could get together and hang. I have another poem to show you. And, you know, he kind of, you know, insults her. I can't remember the exact word again. But after she leaves, he regrets it and he starts to chase her down. But then the tramp lady comes along and he starts to get seduced. And then you cut to the New Year's party. And this is where everything kind of falls apart for Ronald because the ex-boyfriend Bobby comes back for a visit over the holidays and Cindy's already drunk and uh, she's, I think she spied on or walked in on Ronald about to have sex with that girl and she's just, you know, kind of lost it because she did have feelings for him. And then Bobby comes back and he can't believe that he was dating Ronald because he knows he was a dork. And then I guess he confronts her and then she explains it. She's not, doesn't have all of her thought capability as well because she was drinking too much. And then she comes out and spoils everything. And he comes out publicly calling her a prostitute. He storms out. And then she has to explain it because she was called a prostitute. So she spills the beans and tells everybody and says how, you know, Ronald fooled you, all these things. And then, you know, Big John kicks him out of the house. What did you think of these scenes? All of that worked fine. And everything's coming to a head here. So that's all working fine for me. I think we get another scene of Quint and his wine. Oh, it's great. I love it when he comes to the party as well because he goes, let the fun begin. Quint is in. Yeah. Like I love that guy, man. He was pretty good. He was funny. It works okay, but I guess I was confused because what is it about this situation that makes him all of a sudden not popular anymore? Is it because he tricked everybody? Is it because he paid her to hang out with him? Like, what is it that... I don't think it was the paying. I think it was the fact that he fooled everybody. But what did he fool everybody about? Like, what did he trick them with? Well, that's the question. It's not like he was a Scooby-Doo villain and pulled off his mask and he was the perverted old man the whole time. It was like, I tricked you all. It was because he got like it was a lie that just got him to sit at the table originally. I was just kind of confused. I'll look at it this way. It's like. Because it didn't seem like they were so attached to her. Because as soon as they broke up, she went and started hanging out with another crowd. Right? Not and really. I think she just was started to see this other guy. And, but she was yeah, still but she friends was around. Friends. Like nobody was just like, oh man, I really miss her, you know. We're such good pals. Like they're just like, see a bitch. We no, got they're this. still hanging. You got the they're still got hanging new hotness now, and we don't care about you anymore. So, you know, it didn't seem like they were such great friends with her that they re- would care too much about No, I disagree what with this that dis- because you do see her still hang with those two girls that were the friends. Here's the thing, though, is that those girls were not the determination. They weren't the determining factor in the popularity. It was all the jocks. They were the guys who ruled the clique. The alpha males there were the ones who were were ruling the roof. But I think that's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. And again, that'll flow to, you know, probably the wrap up conversation. But it seemed like a, a quick turn. And I it didn't seem like they were such moral stalwarts to all of a sudden shun him for what? Like trying to be popular? I know what you're saying. You know, it's hard for me. I, you know, this is a movie. Things have to be played up to a little bit of a bizarre level for the movies. It, you know, this is not a drama. This is not a no, drama. for sure. They needed something to, you know, in order to bring it to a satisfactory, to a satisfying conclusion, there needs to be, like this conflict needs to come to a head. And, and he, he needs break. his comeuppance too. So he needs and to he be, does. this is the best way to do it. It's got to be dramatic. Well, he deserves it. 
I'm not saying he doesn't because he definitely deserves it. So I'm glad he gets some comeuppance. That's good. But the group, like, I didn't know why they did it. That didn't feel truthful to me. Yeah. The fact that they, he would just say, you know what, man, just leave. That's what Big John said. But then he is basically kicked to the curb. Hence. Yeah, but then he's made fun of. So you see they'll get to the next scene. So why don't we just play the rest yeah, of the movie? Because the yeah. movie's near done anyways at this point. So, you know, he is now the laughing stock. He's outed. He's at the, you know, bottom rung of the, the clique ladder. Nobody wants to touch him, even his old friends. You know, you see the scenes where he sits alone at the tables in the lunchroom. He gets made. Yeah. <laughs> I found the joke kind of funny and disturbing at the same time. You know, this, you know, overweight woman, obviously someone who probably would not be popular uh, or in the A crowd, comes up to him, makes fun of him at lunch and says, uh, you know, you could have had me for, you know, $1,000. You could have had me for forty nine ninety five or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, that was a pretty good line. <laughs> it was a good line, even though it was a little, you know, I don't know if that joke could play today. No, you know, probably today, not. Especially probably considering not. who was delivering it. But it was a funny line. But I mean, he's outed, right? So like, you know, you pulled a Ronald Miller. It's kind of like, you know, the episode with Homer lying about shutting down the plant safely. And it's like, oh, you, I pulled a Homer. Right. Yeah. And you got into the, the Webster Dictionary. So this guy here pulled, you know, Ronald Miller pulled a Ronald Miller. And this is now yeah. a Ronald Miller. So he gets made fun of. And then I guess tries again, get tacked together with Kenneth. Kenneth won't have it. But then on a different day, you see Kenneth trying to tutor one of the popular girls in math or whatever subject it is. And Quint comes in and he, you know, because he's, you know, really more defensive now. Or another fucking geeks come and sit in our table. He's going to pull another Ronald Miller on us. And so he's, a little bit more violent and he wants to beat this guy up. And that's when Ronald steps in to save Kenneth and he grabs a baseball bat and says, Oh, you know, I'll break your arm if you touch Kenneth. And then he gives him the, you know, the cliche talk where, you know, all this social status, whether it's in school or out of school, it's all bullshit. You know, we all used to hang out and be friends when we were young and in grade school. And then we went our separate ways and then we got shafted as the losers. And why is that? And he's, you know, it's an interesting question to bring up, but done in a very cliche way. And then he goes off and then you see the cliche clapping by everybody at the end yeah. of his speech. But then, and then the movie ends with, because you guess no one's going to forgive him. And he's still kind of alone and isolated. He's paying for what he did. But then Cindy forgives him because she knows who he truly is without all that pretense. And as he's mowing her lawn one last time, she's about to go off with her girlfriends again in a car. And then he's leaving in his mower after finishing the job. And then she runs up to him. And I like the little comeback because initially she was calling him Donald instead of Ronald, yeah. his real name. Yeah. And then here she purposely says Donald. And then I thought that was kind of cute. And then it comes back and then she jumps on the back of the mower and he, they ride off into the sunset. And then the Camp on Me Love song plays and the credits roll. And I did like the ending. But let's talk about the scenes that lead up to the ending, mainly his speech to everybody and that joke with the girl about the 49.95, how he's ousted. And was any of this effective to you and did the movie wrap up well? Well, I think it wrapped up appropriately with the ending. I mean, you know, you got to figure they're going to get together. And if I'm watching a movie like this, you kind of need to get them together. So that's fine. That felt authentic enough. I guess she felt that he paid for it, if you'll pardon the pun appropriately, and then move forward from there. So that was okay. I'm not sure. So I'll go back a little bit. I mean, it was important for him to get what was coming to him, to get his comeuppance, because he had been such a terrible person to her. 
I think the biggest, they didn't really play it up enough. And I actually thought it was one of the better features of the film here about him getting what was coming to him is when he was popular and the girls were fighting over him, they were passing him around like a cheap hooker. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was great. And I thought they should have done some more of that because he was just looking exhausted after a while. They weren't really interested in him. They were just interested in his aura. Yeah. Being with the it thing. What's it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. So they were, in a sense, doing what he was trying to do, was, which was just feed off of that, off of the image in order to, you know, it's like some kind of popularity vampire or something like that in order to enhance their own stature or something. I don't think they explored that enough. And then when we get to the end, so we're in the outdoor cafeteria. This is, I suppose, his redemption scene where he gets violent and threatens the dude with the baseball bat. It's like, we were all friends. You know, this is where he's announcing to the world that doesn't matter if you're popular or not or it's all bullshit and we were all friends and all this stuff like yeah i mean it didn't feel like this was i mean what did he do here i mean he stood up for his friend like his original friend his real friend and that's fine i suppose but it was a little one note it was a little dramatic and it was a little superficial for me and for the conclusion of the film here i know they wanted to have a big dramatic thing but when they do that they kind of lose some of the nuance that they were playing with throughout the movie so yeah Yeah, i agree with you but you have to look at the target audience and the genre itself right this is aimed at teens yeah so yeah not like it's this is the social commentary but i guess that's what they're trying to say well social status really doesn't matter and that's a lesson you should learn real relationships are what matters your real friends right about climbing any ladders at school or in life right just be yourself fair enough but if we're kind of getting into the overall messages of the movie here you're right like that's exactly what they're saying here because i think they are trying to do some social commentary here on popularity on social structure on class system and what's ironic is that commentary itself is as superficial as the system that it's trying to undercut it basically the commentary is popularity is all bs Go be yourself, as you just said. And while that might be true, it's not really that simple. There is a lot more nuance to that type of situation and those feelings, especially when you're a teenager. When I was in high school, junior high, probably more so than high school, but you know, everybody has kind of a different experience. Like that stuff was really, really important. And it wasn't just important because it was the concept of everybody liking you or the concept of popularity was going to school when you're a teenager and you're an emotional mess. You got hormones blasting out of your eyeballs. You got the stress of school and teachers and friends and people might be making fun of you. You don't get to do the activities that maybe you want to. Maybe you want to be a football player, but you can't get in with that crowd. So you can't go play football. Maybe you like playing chess, but everybody makes fun of you for being in the chess club and you're a nerd. Like all of that stuff, like that has real emotional impact, especially when you think of the stress of that on a moment to moment basis every single day for, you know, three to six years of your life when you're only a kid. Like, it's very difficult. So to just to dismiss that as, oh, it's all BS, that isn't how it is when you're in it. And that's why I found it to be superficial. Like, yeah, duh, we know it's BS to us, but we're adults. When you're a kid, it isn't BS. It is much, much more going on there. Like, kids kill themselves over this stuff, sadly. And so that tells you right there, there is more to these types of situations than they're giving credit to. I agree with you. The only thing to counteract what you're saying is that 
This is a comedy. It's not something that's going to sit there and psychoanalyze the impacts of popularity at its negative impacts on people. They're already demonstrating to you, whether at a superficial level or not, the kind of steps that one the people do take to become popular and how drastically it can change you for the worse. So those are the messages it's got here. For it to do what you want to do, that's a completely different movie, and in my opinion, a completely different genre. I don't think that that can play out in a movie like this very well. Like well, this no, is an wouldn't. hour and a half movie, and it's comedy. But that's what they made the movie about. They pivot into that for the whole movie without doing anything with it. You know what I mean? Like, if they wanted to make a lighthearted comedy, which is what I feel the tone here is, then they should have turned away from all of that stuff. They could have put their effort somewhere else namely the humor. Then you're a dime a dozen with every other comedy. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to pick this one is because I feel that it stands, whether it's effective or not, is a different story, but it stands out from other comedies that I saw. Like, you know, you have so many classic comedies from the 80s and they're classics for their own right. We'll talk about if this is a classic or not, but this is at least different than some of the other ones out there, addressing it in a different way. I get where you're coming from there and I appreciate them going for something a little different. I guess the issue I have is that if you're just going to scratch the surface of an issue, then I think you need to make it something that is a surface level type of issue where you can get away with just scratching the surfaces. And like they scratched the surface and they started to uncover some rust and then they just like stop scratching because it's like, oh, we don't want to go too far here. Like, if you didn't want to go too far uh, here, but, then but you I shouldn't have scratched it in the first place. I don't know. I don't agree with that sentiment because... I mean, then you could say that about hundreds of other good movies where, in my opinion, they scratch the surface and then just leave it. They don't go into yeah, depth, nah. but you forgive it because it's the genre. I don't let I'm not letting anything go. God well, damn it, the- Harry. I'm not letting anything go. <laughs> Holding them to account. If it was a funnier movie, then maybe I would have been all right with it. But Because that's the thing, though. There's lots of great comedies out there. And they're funny because they do such a good job of subverting. Like the greatest comedy is subversive. They do a great job of making quick, tight commentary or observations that are funny, but they get to the heart of these types of matters. And that doesn't mean you can't have a 90-minute movie that's tight and funny. There's lots of movies that are tight and funny that dig into this stuff. And there are also lots of great movies that are light and funny, and they don't try to scratch at any issues, and they're still fucking great and different because of how, you know, the quality of the jokes, the quality of the, the filmmaking, and all of that. So for me, this is in a bit of a middle ground between those things. And they bring up some interesting issues, but it's not enough to bring up interesting issues. If you're going to bring up an interesting issue, you better be ready to go to the map with it. If you're not, find, you know, lean into something else. Especially because you only have 90 minutes. You know, you got to lean hard into one thing to make it work. That's my speech. Okay. It's good that you get invested in this. And that's, that's important. You know, that's why we're doing this. So I guess that wraps the movie. Do you have any other comments before we get into our final thoughts here, Jeff? Or anything else you want to say? Did we really close the book on the initial concept of, you know, her basically being an escort? Like, did we really dig into that enough, do you think? Or, or does that I, need a visit here? What do you think? I agree with you. She's an escort. I don't think she's a prostitute, but it's a fine line. I don't know where morality draws it you know it's a gray area because you know the boyfriend calls her a prostitute so now she's labeled as a prostitute like the bobby guy the football player at the end of the movie so the writers address her as that the movie was originally called boy rents girl so she's rent he's and he says i'm renting you yeah she takes the money but in the end she still falls for him nothing physical happened when they were together so i don't know i agree with you that she this is partly prostitution so i would say yes 
because you're prostituting your time. You're also prostituting, I don't know, like your social status, I guess. Like, not that that's important, but it's like who you are. And right. in the end, it's like that wasn't even really important anyways, because you get a sense that she's not, that's not her anyways, right? Right. And she okay. knows so- that. So she's fake anyways in front of everybody. I mean, that's the other interesting thing. Talk about it, but I think we've talked about it. I mean, I don't know how much more we can get into it. Okay, well, there is one more aspect of this that I do want to ask you about. Okay, so we'll agree at least that this is at least escort level, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we can have the argument of, you know, prostitution or not, because physical, whatever. We'll say, like, this is an escort. That being the case, is there any moral culpability to the situation and if so which one of these two characters like it's a movie right so usually when you have a character when they do something bad they got to pay for it so he treats her like shit he ends up having to pay for it he gets his chance at redemption so that's fine right so the original situation where he rents her is there a moral issue at that and if so which one of them is guilty him or her both and is it equal or not oh man i I would say both he knows what he was doing or he knew what he was going to do to her as well yeah he didn't care because he was only in it for himself but you look at that and say he wanted to get in he felt he was always mistreated you know there's no way these guys will let me in so i gotta buy my way yeah so that's where he's coming from so you feel for him and he's right he's justified in a sense in that but in the end you know we find out that's not important He's learned his lesson and he does pay for it. So it's his responsibility, if that's your question. It's also her responsibility. I also found it interesting that she really, except for her kind of fallout with Bobby, she had no other negative consequence. No, she didn't. Which I thought was interesting. I don't disagree with that choice on the filmmakers. It's just, the you know, when you watch movies, often it's the woman who's seen as the villain, the perpetrator. perpetrator, yeah. Right. And so then they didn't do that. Even though maybe they're desperate and they have no choice or such and such and such. I don't label women who have to go down that line. I don't support the profession, but I'm not going to sit there and criticize and judge somebody who's going to go do that. Yeah. Life's tough as it is. If that's what you have to do to survive, I mean, power to you. That's my book. But it's a tough thing. That's kind of why I was, you know, trying to come across as upset. Like, I think there's some really interesting issues that are brought up here. And I'm just like, oh, man, like, can't we just, like, let's get into this here. And and they don't really. And that's kind of why I'm like, ah, So that's that's interesting. So then you're, you see, the thing is, I thought you were more upset. See, I think I agree with you. I think if they could draw anything else out in this movie, I think I would have liked to have seen any negative consequence that would have happened to her out of it because Mm -hmm. of this act of escorting or as they label it, prostitution. You know, did that kick her out of her status? Or did she have any negative fallout with her family or friends? Because you didn't see anything except for Bobby getting upset. I don't have a problem too much with them not really punishing her because I... I'm kind of with you, like, you know, you're, she's in a desperate situation. She did what she thought she had to do there. So I'm okay with that. But it's an interesting issue. It's an interesting question, I think, that can be asked there. And that we don't really, like, we don't really do anything with it. So that's one area where I think they could have explored a little bit more. Yeah. Because, but because they were running so tight and they wanted to add the laughs. So they created some other scenes. I mean, that's serious stuff. 
So if you're making a comedy, when we get to our final talks, this is obviously not going to end up being one of the best comedies ever made or a top 10. It's got to be a top 10 comedy to really hit all those notes in the right way. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that makes this a bad movie. I can't really talk about it more because you're right. They don't address it more. And yeah. I think they could have. So yeah, I agree with you. I wish they did a tiny bit more. Mm -hmm. Why don't we end it here? Because I think we're getting close to the two hour mark. So let's wrap this sucker up. So Jeff, last thoughts. Anything else you want to say about this movie? Would you recommend it? Is it a rare antiquity for the genre or as a movie as a whole? What about the performances and or the directing or anything, you know, that hits you in a positive or negative way? Yeah, it's not a particularly stylish film. You said before, it's pretty point and shoot, which is fine. Totally appropriate for this type of movie. I thought the performances all around were very solid. Everybody was very believable in the role. Uh, and there were some very good moments between some of the characters, some of those personal moments we talked about. It was good. There are laughs to be had here. So, you know, it was funny at times. You know, again, as I've said, I think that they didn't go far enough in exploring some of the issues. If it had been funnier, if it had better jokes, then this would have worked a lot better for me. And I think that there's humor in some of the situations, some of the serious stuff they're playing with. There's plenty of opportunity for humor. And uh, I think it's unfortunate that, you know, they didn't go. I don't think they went far enough into that. So, you know, it was uh, fine to watch. It was entertaining enough. So would I recommend the movie? I don't know that I'm going to give it a recommendation. It's certainly not a paint by numbers type of comedy. It has some different things going on. But like I said, I don't think they went far enough for anything to put it above, like where it's like, yeah, you got to sing all this one movie up from 1987 to watch. So no, I think you could probably skip it. You're not going to miss out on too much here. Is it a rare antiquity? I mean, I got to say no, just because I don't think they hit the beats that they needed to. The jokes themselves weren't unique or funny enough. And again, as I've said, like some of the issues they brought up, they don't flesh it out enough. They don't dig into those enough. So it was kind of as if they brought them up in the first place. You know, I'm kind of disturbed at some of the things that they were suggesting. So no, I'm not going to give it the rare antiquity status stamp seal of approval today. So back to you. I guess one question. You said right. you watched this with your significant other. Did she yeah. enjoy this movie at all? Or Yeah, she thought it was fine. She thought it was fine. I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the issues here and we didn't get into like a huge discussion over it. But, you know, I think she more or less in, like enjoyed it as just a light thing to watch. But that's about but that's it. Okay. I agree with you partially. This is not a rare antiquity by any means, because I think it had to be something a bit more special, as you talked about, if they explored some things a bit more, if there was a bit more depth there, and they were still able to deliver the laughs while doing it. I think that could have been a bit more of a special movie, and I could have given it a rare antiquity. I do recommend this movie. If to me, it's a mid to high recommend, because they hit some of these concepts that I, don't, I haven't seen in a lot of other high school movies. I thought it was somewhat unique. It's not completely unique. It's somewhat unique. And because the performances were good, because the laughs, for the most part, I'd say, you know, 80, 90% success rate on the laughs. I think that's a rare thing to do for a movie. I enjoyed the laughs. There were a couple of things. There was some cringeworthy moments in the movie that I, I highlighted I didn't like. But I thought the writing was okay. The directing, you know, was point and shoot. But that's okay. As you said, for the genre, I'm not going to, you know, fault it. But I really like the characters. I like the B players as well. I, that's a hard thing to do is to bring in all these surrounding B players and you want to see them more in the movie and you like it when they're there. You're not saying, fuck this guy again. And I hate everybody else except the leads. I liked every character in the movie. You know, I even we did mm -hmm. talk about 
the mom. I liked Cindy's mom. They had a couple of scenes together. I liked a couple of their scenes together. Ronald's parents, I liked their interaction a tiny bit. There's not a lot of meat there, but it wasn't something that I hated to see. I know I wasn't as tough on Chucky, uh, Seth Green's character. I mean, I didn't like continuous fart jokes, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the fact that you can land it so perfectly, uh, I guess that's amusing. But I think for the most part, I really enjoyed all the performances here. And I think that's a strength, especially when there's not too much more substance or other layers you can dig into a movie. I don't want to keep bringing up Star Wars, but I think that was a strong point for you, is you loved the characters, but the story was lacking. But you're interested to see what was happening next. Now, there's no continuation for the storyline. That's fine. Obviously, there would be no place to go, really. But I enjoyed the characters a lot, that I can at least enjoy the movie. And that's where I stand. So it's a mid-to-high recommend for me, but not a rare antiquity. Yeah, I think anyone who enjoys a romantic comedy should give this one a watch. I think it's a little different than some other 80 comedies that you'll see, and you'll probably find something amusing to like in there. You know what they should do is to continue the story, they should have Quint and Bucktooth Mofo in their own film together and they could like team up to like fight crime and shit. That would be There's your Archie Zombie <laughs> TV series. Perfect. You know, the Walking Red. <laughs> <laughs> We don't want Bucktooth Boy to become a zombie because he will eat everybody. With that overbite, boy, forget it. World's over. All right. Well, I guess that does it for today's episode, episode 37. Jeff, thank you very much for watching this movie and waiting to record it. It's been a while. Can you let us know what's happening next time? So if I am correct, we have a bit of a special episode next time and a deviation from our normal routine. We're going to dive into the TV premiere of Star Trek Discovery. That's our next up. Yeah, no, I can't wait for that. It should be good. So hopefully we'll be able to get some of the other guys back for that one and can't wait. Yeah, that'll be a good time for sure. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. I do have to get going and, you know, hope to see you soon. All right, man. We'll see you next time. All right. Cheers. Cheers.